Good morning. Can you hear me? Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I think the volume needs to go up a bit. We'll just... Hi, Jisai. We're just turning the volume up. Okay. That's all it is. Let's try again. Okay, try all again. Right. How about now? Can you hear me? Okay, that's great. Uh, okay. I'd just like to um, introduce Jisai, who's coming in live from Louisville, Kentucky, to give this Dharma talk. So uh, we're really glad uh, you can give the talk, Jisai, and take it away. Okay. So what I'll ask you to do is I'll ask you to mute Auckland Zen Center just so that there's no interference with the with the audio. And all is still well. You can still hear me. Thumbs up. Okay. Excellent. All right. So today is December 3rd, 2023. For you, <laughs> for me, it's still December 2nd, but <laughs> since this is your party, <laughs> we'll call it December 3rd. Uh, and my name is Desai Prince Cherry, and thank you so much for inviting me to to give this Dharma talk. I'd like to um, make sure that there's times for questions or comments at the end. So um, let's go ahead and get started. And we'll start with a story. And let me just say a few things about my use of stories. Um, I love stories. I think that stories can do so much to help us understand understand the Dharma, understand our own hearts and our own minds. And, and if a, a picture is worth a, a thousand words, uh, a story, even though it may take a thousand words, it's worth a million words. So I use them often. Um, they can come from many different sources. My favorites are uh, children's, what can be called children's stories, so-called children's stories. They are so much more direct and clear that even adults might be able to understand them. So we'll start with a story. And this story is from the book, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, by Christina Feldman, compiled by Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield. And this is how it goes. A man found an eagle's egg and put it in the nest of a backyard hen. The eaglet hatched with the brood of chicks and grew up with them. All his life, the eagle did what the backyard chickens did, thinking he was a backyard chicken. He scratched the earth for worms and insects. He clucked and cackled and he would thrash his wings and fly a few feet into the air. Years passed, and the eagle grew very old. One day, he saw a magnificent bird far above him in the cloudless sky. It glided in graceful majesty among the powerful wind currents with scarcely a beat of its strong golden wings. The old eagle looked up and Who's that? he asked. That's the eagle, the king of the birds, said his neighbor. He belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. We're chickens. So the eagle lived and died a chicken, for that's what he thought he was. Uh, like you, um, Rochester Zen Center and, and Louisville Zen Center will be uh, celebrating um, the Buddha's enlightenment. So the Buddha's enlightenment ceremony will be this week. Uh, I'm a remote staff member for, for Rochester Zen Center, 
and I, I, I uh, make sure that all of the, the remote operations happen, the online operations happen. And so to avoid redundancy, instead of, instead of participating in Rochester ceremony and doing one for the Global Zen Center, then the folks for the Global Zen Center are invited to come here and participate in that broadcast. And that ceremony is one of my favorite ones throughout the year. The words of the Buddha has sustained me throughout this nearly 30 years of Zen practice. Those same words that, that uh, we hear in the Buddha's enlightenment uh, story. This is how, uh, well, this is one way of, of that, that, that quote is said. So this is what the Buddha uttered spontaneously upon his great awakening. He said, wonder of wonders, intrinsically all living beings are Buddha, endowed with wisdom and virtue. But because people's minds have become inverted through delusive thinking, they fail to perceive this. So whenever I've been frustrated in my practice, um, doubting my ability to see my way through it, to see, to realize my true nature thoroughly, I remember the Buddha's words. Intrinsically, all living beings are Buddha, endowed with wisdom and virtue including me. <laughs> and whenever I have felt um, uh, this practice was hard, it's hard. Too hard for me. I remembered the Buddha's words as to why it's so hard, it feels so hard because people's minds have become inverted through delusive thinking. This uh, delusive thinking of the Buddhas is what I'd like to talk about today. So what is this delusion that the Buddha was referring to? Uh, being deluded is being totally, utterly deceived. We believe in something that isn't real. And in Buddhism, it's, it, it's the ignorance of our true nature. That's delusion. And the, uh, the fundamental delusion is that of a belief in I or ego, or self. That's the core delusion out of which all the rest spring. And to explore this subject, I want to, I'm going to be using the book, uh, Insight Meditation, The Practice of Freedom by Joseph Goldstein. So I'll be reading some passages from it. So um, why don't we get started? And, and I'll be reading from a section of the book called Selflessness, or, or in Zen terms, no self. And this is how that section begins. And, and I won't be reading all of this. This section is way too much, goes into way more details than what we need. So I'll be skipping around. But this is how it begins. <clears throat> the most puzzling aspect of the Buddhist teaching is the idea and experience of no self. So many questions arise. If there is no self, who makes effort and practice? Who gets reborn? Who has memories? Who gets angry? Who falls in love? What does no self mean? Often people are afraid of this idea 
perhaps imagining that they will vanish into the void. But deeply understanding no self is the great jewel of the Buddha's teaching. It is the heart of a free mind. A Sri Lankan monk once expressed it succinctly, and this is, these are the words of this Sri Lankan monk, no self, no problem. And then Goldstein continues, as mindfulness becomes stronger, we begin opening to this radically transformative way of understanding ourselves and the world. We find we are not who we thought ourselves to be. We are not our body, not our thoughts, not our emotions. We discover that the whole notion of self, of I, is a concept, a mental fabrication. Now, at this point, I think it's important to differentiate between this Buddhist idea of ego, of self, and that of, uh, from the psychological perspective. Because they use the same words, but the meaning is, is, is completely different. So in psychology, ego or self refers to kind of a certain strength and balance of mind. It's needed, a healthy functioning ego is needed to, to, to live harmoniously with others and to function harmoniously in the world. For instance, without a, 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 someone with, a, with, with an ill-formed sense of self may not look both ways before crossing the street. So a healthy psychological ego is necessary. But from the Buddhist perspective, the Buddhist ego, the Buddhist self is something else entirely. It is completely unnecessary to, to being able to function in the world and can get in the way. This is how my own teacher, Roshi Bodin Kohid, puts it. He says, in Buddhism, the self or ego, and let's say here that they're synonymous, is the illusion of some unchanging and autonomous entity to whom our experience is happening. This idea that there is someone in us or someone back behind all our perceptions and responses is understood in Buddhism as the core of human delusion. This core of human delusion that we all have. It's, I think it's like our, maybe that's our karma as human beings to go overboard with the sense of self. But why do we do that? If there's no ego, there's no permanent, unchanging self, why do we think there is? Now, um, Goldstein in, in this book goes into excruciating detail to help us understand how the mind creates the idea of self and how to free ourselves from that notion. But um, in Zen, getting into all of those details is not so much our way, is it? Our way is more to sit and to experience it for ourselves. However, <laughs> um, most of the people practicing with Rochester Zen Center, the vast majority of people practicing with Rochester Zen Center and Louisville Zen Center, perhaps maybe there too, 
in Auckland weren't raised Buddhist nor live in a Buddhist culture. And so haven't absorbed some of these principles by osmosis. If, if you spend enough time in the U.S., you will, whether you're religious or not, will just absorb the um, sort of the teachings of, of the majority religions, Judaism and Christianity. It permeates our entire culture, our movies, literature, music. Even, even if you're not religious, it's there. And because um, we have not absorbed uh, Buddhism in that same way, we may not be as familiar. We may be familiar in an intellectual way, but maybe not so much in our bones. And so I think it's okay to get into the weeds sometimes. It helps to increase our faith in the practice, I think. And when our faith, we have greater faith in the practice, then we are, we can throw ourselves into it much more wholeheartedly. Without reservations, without holding back. So um, with that spirit in mind, let's dip our toes into some of this detail. So the question again, where does this belief in a self come from? What tendencies, what tendencies do we have as human beings that contribute to a sense of self? So there are four that um, major ones that he talks about. And the first one is our tendency to mistake words and concepts for reality. And this is what he says about that. I'm skipping. So uh, he says, one particular factor of mind often gets out of balance and keeps us imprisoned in the conventional idea of self. This is the factor of perception, whose function is to recognize appearances by picking out their distinguishing characteristics and then to store them in memory through the use of concepts. And then he gives a list of concepts that we all probably have recorded in our minds. So I challenge you, I'm gonna say some of these words and to watch what happens in your mind when I say them. Woman, man, tree, car, city, ocean. This, it's a natural human function for us to do, to do these things. That's how we get along in the world. But it, the mistake comes when we think that what the picture that we have in our minds is the same as the reality. This is what he says. When perception arises along with mindfulness, then the surface recognition frames the appearance for deeper and more careful observation. But when perception functions without mindfulness, then we recognize and remember only the appearance of things. Now, those are a lot of words. And so I think another story, this is a good place for another story. A story that I don't think I've ever shared before. <laughs> it's, it's quite cute, but it does a wonderful job of illustrating just what he says. When perception arises along with mindfulness, then the surface recognition frames the appearance for deeper 
and more careful observation. And the other thing that he says that this story illustrates, when perception functions without mindfulness, then we recognize and remember only the appearance of things. So the story is from the book Fables by Arnold Lobel. This is actually an award-winning book here in the U.S. And uh, the story is called The Hen and the Apple Tree. One October day, a hen looked out her window. She saw an apple tree growing in her backyard. Now that is odd, said the hen. I am certain that there was no tree standing in that spot yesterday. There are some of us that grow fast, said the tree. The hen looked at the bottom of the tree. I have never seen a tree, she said, that has 10 furry toes. There are some of us that do, said the tree. Hen, come outside and enjoy the cool shade of my leafy branches. The hen looked at the top of the tree. I have never seen a tree, she said, that has two long pointed ears. There are some of us that have, said the tree. Hen, come outside and eat one of my delicious apples. Come to think of it, said the hen, I have never heard a tree speak from a mouth that is full of sharp teeth. There are some of us that can, said the tree. Hen, come outside and rest your back against the bark of my trunk. I have heard, said the hen, that some of you trees lose all of your leaves at this time of the year. Oh, yes, said the tree, there are some of us that will. The tree began to quiver and shake. All of its leaves quickly dropped off. The hen was not surprised to see a large wolf in the place where an apple tree had been standing just a moment before. She locked her shutters and slammed her window closed. The wolf knew that he had been outsmarted. He stormed away in a hungry rage. And uh, that is the end of that story. So thinking, concepts, picturing something in our minds, and thinking it's real contributes to delusive thinking. It's delusion. That's not the reality. It's not the direct fact. Another um, tendency that we have that contributes to our sense of self is, is using language. Our tendency is to think things are solid and stable, that they're static. This is what Goldstein says about that. He says, one deeply conditioned perception we have about ourselves and the world is incorrect and leads us to many inaccurate conclusions. It keeps us from understanding what is true. This is the perception of the basic solidity of things. And then he uses a, a quote from the book Crazy Wisdom by Wes Nisker that speaks to this. And this is what Nisker says. Our language behaves as though reality were solid. On the simplest level, it positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. The Hopi are Native Americans in the American Southwest. For the Hopi, the nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. 
Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. And then Goldstein comments, as long as we remain stuck in this illusion, we cannot clearly see or understand the impermanent, insubstantial nature of momentary phenomena. Although we may know the truth of change intellectually, in order for it to transform our understanding, we need actually to experience it in ourself. One of the characteristics of existence, besides no self and suffering, is impermanence. This constantly changing, constantly flowing life that we all are. So our tendency to think things are solid and stable and static contributes to our sense of self. Uh, another tendency is to think things are separate and independent. Goldstein says, because we usually do not observe phenomena closely, we satisfy ourselves with a surface impression. For example, what is your sense of your body? Do you relate to it as a composite of many different organs, energies, and systems? Or do you view it as something solid that you name body and then claim as being mine? So um, I think uh, another example of this, another illustration of this very thing, this co composite nature of things that we can generalize and help lump things together it's a, it, these are the words from the Vasudhi Maga. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. And this, these are the writings of, of, of a Buddhist practitioner, a Buddhaghosa. He was a Buddhist. Uh, it, these are writings on Buddhist practice. He lived in the 5th century. Indian Theravada Buddhist commentator, translator, and philosopher. So this is on our tendency to uh, think things are, uh, in, are independent and separate. So this is what he says, Buddhaghosa. Just as the word chariot is merely a means of expressing how axle, body, wheel and poles are brought together in a certain relationship. But when we look at each of them one by one, there is no chariot in an absolute sense. And just as the word house is a way of expressing how wood and other materials stand in relationship to each other in a certain space, but in the absolute sense, there is no house. And just as the word fist is an expression for the finger and thumb in relationship, and tree for trunk, branches, leaves, and so on, but in an absolute sense there is no fist or tree, in exactly the same way the words living entity and person are but ways of expressing the relationship of body, feeling, and consciousness. But when we come to examine the elements of being one by one, we find there is no entity there. In the absolute sense, there is only name and form and the mystery which they express. are not separate and independent. 
interdependent. They're interdependent and in relationship. And then one final biggie that contributes to our sense of self is our tendency to identify with our thoughts. We tell ourselves stories and think that what we're saying is real, is true. This is what uh, Goldstein says. While attachment to concept creates the belief in self, another process altogether engenders the feeling of self. Even as we begin to see the composite nature of our experience, understanding that there is no metaphysical presence we can call I, still we have the strong habit of identifying with various elements of changing experience. And it is this process of identification that gives birth to the ego. When we identify with thoughts that arise in our mind, when we are lost in them, captured by them, then we have this sense, I'm thinking, or these are my thoughts. This process of identification happens with thoughts, sensations, emotions or images. The experiences themselves simply appear and disappear, not belonging to anyone. But the moment we identify with them, we have created a sense of self, a massive hallucination of perception. And there is a lovely story that very clearly illustrates the same point Thinking our thoughts are real, contributing to this sense of self. And it's from the book One Hand Clapping. It's in Stories for All Ages by, by Rafe Martin. It's the story is called Baby Snake in a Cup. One evening, a man was invited to the home of a friend. As he was about to drink a cup of tea that was offered to him, he thought he saw a baby snake in the cup. He did not want to embarrass his hostess, so he gathered all of his courage and swallowed the tea in one gulp. When the man returned home later that night, he began to feel severe pains in his stomach. By the next day, the pains had grown worse. He consulted several doctors and tried many cures, but none worked. The man, now seriously ill, thought he was about to die. Hearing of his condition, his friend invited him to visit her again. Sitting in the same place, he accepted another cup of tea. As the sick man lifted his cup to drink, he suddenly saw the snake again. This time he had to speak up. So he drew his hostess's attention to it. Without a word, she pointed to the ceiling above her guest. He looked up. There, just above him, hanging from a beam, was a length of rope. The sick man realized all at once that what he had thought was a baby snake was simply the reflection of the rope. The two friends looked at each other and laughed. The pain of the sick man vanished instantly and he recovered perfect health. So, this is where we are. This is the predicament 
that we are all in. Delusive thinking is alive and well in all of us. So what do we do about that? How do we see through this delusion of self and realize no self, our true self? This is what Goldstein says. Understanding no self does not come from destroying something we call self or ego. The great awakening or discovery of the Buddha revealed that there was no self, no permanent I to begin with. So if there is nothing we have to get rid of, then understanding selflessness very simply comes from careful awareness of what actually is happening moment to moment. Careful awareness of what actually is happening from moment to moment. Then Master Akowin asked, how can we be free from birth and death? That again, this birth and death and all the other dualities that spring from, from, from delusion, us and them, me and you, this and that, cause and effect. And then he answers, the gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Uh, samadhi, uh, absorption and what is from one moment to the next. Right now, and now, and now. In our formal practice, we may be working on a, doing a breath practice or koan practice or shikantaza and attending to our lives from one moment to the next. We have the ability to be absorbed in that. However, but we can't be fully absorbed in the moment and conscious of ourselves at the same time. Self-consciousness is distracting. It's painful. We're split. It's a painful split. Uh, this, this pain of self-consciousness is what brought many, many people to practice. It certainly brought me to practice. I remember um, in um, high school, I was in high school in the mid-80s, there was this song that came out. It was by Rockwell. And the song had a refrain that was sung by Michael Jackson. I don't know how much of American culture makes its way to New Zealand, but maybe you've heard of Michael Jackson. Maybe not of Rockwell, but of Michael Jackson. And so I was a Michael Jackson fan, and so I, I listened to this song. But this song really spoke to my experience, my pain. And it was really, I think it was probably um, 10 years later that I began practicing Zen. But here's, here's the, the refrain. I don't even remember what all was in the song, but I just remember the refrain, the part that Michael Jackson, Jackson sang over and over again. And it, it went like this. I always feel like somebody's watching me and I have no privacy. Oh, I always feel like Somebody's watching me. Tell me, is it just a dream? Now, the, the, the character, the way the song goes and the music video that went with it, the character was paranoid. I, it, that was not what was going on with me. I didn't have the sense that 
someone else was watching me. There was nobody else watching me. <coughs> it was me watching me. It was self-consciousness. My own teacher um, said, has said more than once that for him, he just got sick of himself. As in Master Hockelin says, the cause of our sorrow is the ego delusion. And that was, certainly was the case for me. The, the positive side though of this pain is that it motivates us. It's fuel for practice. It motivates us to turn inward. Master Hakalin picks up on this. He says, and when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self. Our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and pass clever words. We go beyond believing in this unchanging, solid, independent self when we turn inward and prove our true nature. We are no longer deceived by language. We can use the words I, me, mine all day long without believing that they're true. Without believing the self exists. We can use words and concepts without being used by them. Uh, or as the, we would say in Zen, we can speak all day without opening our mouths. And then uh, Master Hakon continues, says, then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. The oneness of cause and effect. Not only the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open, but the gate to the oneness of all dualities thrown open. dualities of me and you, us and them, birth and death, man and woman, self and other, wide open. The gate to oneness thrown wide open. And we become all things. Instead of being some separate person standing outside of our lives, become life moving, flowing itself. Gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. One final story, one that beautifully illustrates this gateway to freedom 
Zazen Samadhi. It's from the book uh, Taking Flight, um, compiled. It's a book of stories compiled by Anthony DeMello. Beautifully illustrates how this practice, both on the cushion and off the cushion that we do, helps us uh, realize our true self, which is no self. This is a story. A woodcarver called Ching had just finished work on a bell frame. Everyone who saw it marveled, for it seemed to be the work of spirits. When the Duke of Lu saw it, he asked, What sort of genius is yours that you can make such a thing? The woodcarver replied, Sire, I am only a simple workman. I am no genius, but there is one thing. When I am going to make a bell frame, I meditate for three days to calm my mind. When I have meditated for three days, I think no more about rewards or emoluments. When I have meditated for five days, I no longer think of praise or blame, skillfulness or awkwardness. When I have meditated for seven days, I suddenly forget my limbs, my body. No, I forget my very self. I lose consciousness of the court and my surroundings. Only my skill remains. In that state, I walk into the forest and examine each tree until I find one in which I see the bell frame in all its perfection. Then my hands go to the task. Having set myself aside, nature meets nature in the work that is performed through me. This, no doubt, is the reason why everyone says that the finished product is the work of spirits. All right, thank you. That's all I have. If there are any questions or comments, you can unmute the center or any of the folks that are online, feel free to unmute yourself if you have any questions or comments. And if you are in the Zendo there at Auckland Zen Center, for me to hear you, you'll have to unmute yourself. And no question. I'm not sure if you can see me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And no questions at this end. Yes. Oh wait, yes. So right. mine, yeah. mine's might be turning questions over yet. <laughs> Have you got a question? Not sir? yet, but I'll wait and see. Oh, I was got a comment, say? Yes. Um, yes, you are going to have to come closer or something because yeah. I can barely hear you. But go ahead. Okay. Um, just I think problems with sort of the self and the ego is, is sometimes feelings of self, self-worth that some of us feel sometimes that they're not worthy of this practice or not worthy in general. And that's what often people struggle with. And to realize, to take heart in the Buddhist teaching that from the very beginning, as you said, we're all whole and complete, lacking nothing. So I think that, this, as you mentioned, it's really good to remind ourselves of that. And it happens even to people in, in training, long-time training at the Zen centres. This often comes up. I remember at the Rochester Zen Centre, there was a, a lovely woman who, for many years, was the head housekeeper. She came from the south, uh, very quiet, very diligent, but she once said to me, uh, oh, you know, I always feel like there's a, a sword hanging over my head. And that was in the context of Zen training. 
that she felt that um, she'd make a mistake and she'd be criticized. And I just sort of said to her, you know, there's, there's no sort, not at all, and, and we all make mistakes. But that was, a, even after many years of training, that was a feeling that often came up for her. So I just throw that out there, out there that, um, you know, we're always working with our sense of self and feelings of inadequacy. And if we, if we, would, if we can just drop, drop that, and I'm sure she did drop it, um, everything functions just as it should. Yeah, so that's I think, my I think uh, thank you, thank you, Richard, for bringing that up. I think one of the biggest um, uh, contributors to the feeling of inadequacy, of worthlessness, especially for people that are seriously practicing Zen, is when we think that we should be further along in our practice than we are whether we um, whether we have had some grand experience that we feel like we should have had or that we get angry when we feel like we shouldn't um, but but I think um, it is the same sort of uh, it, we, we just changed the context it is the same sort of thing of of it's just really thoughts and shoulds and oughts. We are whole and complete just as we are. Perfect. Perfect. And it and those shoulds can really get in the way. Really, really get in the way. So thank you, Richard, for, for bringing that up. It does help to remember the Buddha's words. Um, I, and I mean, I have to remember them over and over again because I think maybe it just doesn't, it doesn't go away, these, these feelings of worthlessness. Part of it, I think it's, it has to do with we're social, we're social creatures and we don't wanna be um, out of the social pool and we want to be doing our part and keeping up with everybody. So I think we just look at it as being a part, a part of our, our karma as human beings and to accept that this is how I feel and to just keep moving. Any other? Hi, and thank you for your talk. Uh, you were talking about how the, um, the sense of self is um, created, how we create it, and I was just wondering um, what you think about how much of that comes, and how much of it is kind of like part of how we're made, and how much of it is just sort of education, you know, how we're brought up to create that sense of self so that we can function in the world. Um, I don't know if there's any answers to that, but maybe it's kind of both. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I do. I think. I think part of it. Uh, let me just let me back up a bit. My one of my sons, um, my youngest son, when he was in um, like middle school or something, like uh, he was in a middle school or high school environmental science class, and uh, he, for an environmental science project, he decided to have composting worms, to, to study composting worms, red wigglers. And I was interested in composting myself. And so I was really on top of this project too. And we would be ordering a pound of worms, hundreds of worms. These are hundreds of lives that he was going to have in his hands. And so one of the things that we did together was that we researched worms and their behavior and, 
And they too are very, very social. There's a social order among worms. And so, we, and worms don't want to be, uh, you'll see, like I still have these worms more than 30 years later, <laughs> I still have worms. Um, I still have keep composting worms. Many, 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 many generations later of worms. But one of the things that you see when you open up the worm bin, see, you might see, you know, the dot here, dot there of worms, but mostly they'll be in clumps. That's how they, that's their behavior. They stay together in clumps. And that's their karma. That's how they are. That's what worms do. And I think this, this may be our karma, having this sense of self. That just may be our karma as human beings. Of, uh, because we want to engage with each other. We too are social creatures. We don't want to be on the outs for a worm. If, if there's a worm out, on the out in the outskirts, the more worms that are together, the, 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 the more likely that they're going to survive and any individual will survive. This is the same way with human beings, that we want to, to, uh, be, to, to have others' approval. That means that we need to be watching ourselves to make sure that we're, we're not doing things that's going to offend the group. So, I, and I'm just guessing at this, because it's just to every person that, that, that we develop this sense of self, this very painful sense of self, but we can do without it. We really can, and still be functioning in society and functioning in groups. So regardless of how it, you know, the, how it happens, uh, we can, we can, do something about it because it is painful. It is painful and it separates us from, from others. So thank you for your question. Hi, geez, I am. Thank you. I'm, I'm Sally and um, yeah, I've been trying to formulate the question. I haven't, don't know if I've got it quite worded properly yet, but um, that's okay. I, I get very concerned about... Sometimes you know, questions come out like blah, 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 blah. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just because I get so concerned about the state the planet is in and what humans are doing to it and to each other. Um, and sometimes when I hear teachings about no self and everything kind of made out of causes and conditions, sometimes I wonder if, if sometimes people might fall into using it as an excuse to not feel like we have to do something about the problems in the world yeah so i don't know how to how to put it but yeah how, thank what, you what's for your view on, on social action and engage, engaging in those things yeah yeah thank you thank you so much for that question I, it's a very good point um it this the sense of this the the teachings of no self could look as if you're that there that you can just kind of disengage from the world but the thing is that we become the world and we feel the pain of the world just that much more it's 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 just as natural as having an itch and scratching it and the world is itching right now and it is our responsibility to scratch it because we're scratching ourselves. And so um, I, the teaching of no self doesn't, doesn't, although, I mean, I think people have different, individuals have different um, tendencies as far as intolerances and, and propensities. Some people will be much more socially engaged than others, regardless of what they're doing, what their practices is and where they are in it. Some people are just more, more engaged in that way and some people aren't. But, but the teachings of no self just make us feel not just our own pain, but the pain of the whole world. But not that it bec we become more magnified. It's just our body just got bigger. It's, it's just got immense. 
so it doesn't it doesn't change um, it so someone who's 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 likely going to scratch their own itch maybe also likely to to um, go out and do some do uh, scratch the itches of the world too so it doesn't that the teachings of no, no self does not won't prevent someone from doing that who especially when that is their tendency that's their affinity to do did, I, did that did I did that answer your question So don't, no, don't, please don't be afraid of, of no self. <laughs> okay, I think our time's about up, so if there's no further questions, we're going to, um, geez, I'm going to uh, chant the, the four vows in Te Reo in Maori, so uh, we, don't, we don't expect you to chant along. <laughs> okay. You can just listen. All right, so why don't we do that? Stop now and recite the four vows. Konawate e fa. Kona kaora katoa. E tokore. Kotakuwate e fakora. Kona ore kore. E musana kore. Kotakuwate e kesu. Kona kuwaharama. E ruri kore. Kotakuwate e tomo. Teara fakahara hapura. Announcements. Uh, on Tuesday, we're going to have our um, Who Doesn't Like Mint ceremony Tuesday evening after some rounds of sitting. And as Jisai mentioned, it's, yeah, it's a lovely ceremony, so come along if you can. Then next uh, Sunday, Roshi will be back, so she'll be offering Doksan on Sunday. And after Doksan and uh, sitting and tea, we'll have our members meeting around about 11 o'clock. And if you want to come along to that, uh, you're very much invited. And we just sort of recap the year. Peter will go through the finances, uh, and uh, Rosh will give us like an overall summary of what's happened this year and what's up ahead in the future for the Auckland Zen Centre. And the other thing is, uh, there's Sashin, our seven day Sashin in January. So if you intend to come to the seven day Sashin, uh, do sign up. Uh, it's good to have for us. From now on, to get a, a, an idea of numbers of who's coming to Sushin. That's all I have. Thanks, everyone, and a special thanks to Chisai. Okay. Oh, I think if you could just tuck your chakra in this usual place. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.
Dot NZ.